1: in this episode of the software people stories shivaguru is in conversation with jayanta he grew up a bangalorean and currently lives and works in berlin a city where a software developer is still a novelty and reason enough to evoke questions from people who meet one unlike Bengaluru, where no one would bat an eyelid He shares his story from when he studied telecom engineering out of a curiosity for digital signal processing, to processing data digitally, to how the GDPR policy has steered all people working with and providing data, to think deeply about really what they want from it and why, to how to glean information from rows of data and how he would have perhaps solved a hound of the Baskervilles type mystery in another way. Jayanta also shares his experience on transitioning from a services company to a product company. Listen on.
0: Hi, Jainta. Welcome to the Software People Stories. Hey, how are you? Yeah, good. I'm very curious. So far on the uh, podcast, we've had people with different backgrounds and experiences, but not someone who has multi country experience, of course. Uh, We've had a couple of people like that, but someone who is just tasting multiple cultures. I thought uh, it'll be very interesting (laughs) to maybe explore that. So as usual, if we can start with uh, an introduction that the guest does, then we can take the conversation from there. Over to you. Yeah, I'm Janta. Grew up here in Bangalore. Studied, did my bachelor's degree in telecommunication engineering, which is not, of course, computer science. And then eventually transitioned after that into a job in computer science and uh, ThoughtWorks. Worked there for two years and then planned on doing a master's degree. That didn't transpire because as I was applying to do my master's degree I was offered an interview at a company where my former boss at ThoughtWorks worked in Berlin Germany and this new job was in data engineering based on my experiences at ThoughtWorks while now I wasn't a data engineer by name I was working a lot with the concepts of that so then yeah I applied to that job interviewed got the job and decided to put my master's degree on hold I suppose indefinitely for, you know, however long it is required, because I thought it was an interesting opportunity to get into a specific field that, you know, I seem to be interested in. And also it was an opportunity to, you know, move to Berlin, you know, Europe, have some good experience that way, something new. And yeah, so here I am, I've been at Omeo, which is the startup that I work for in Berlin now for two years. That's where I am right now in my career. The first question is, what made you choose computer science or get into IT? Okay, that's a very interesting question. So I suppose my whole life I've been kind of in IT, like it's been kind of around me everywhere. My father was a software engineer, as you know, and so are a lot of his friends, as you know, as well. So I think software engineering was something that was always interesting to me. My sister did it. And when it came time for me to choose an engineering degree, at that point, in fact, in the, you know, a few months before that, I was, had gained some interest in things like digital signal processing. And along with wanting to you know, study in a very old college and not having secured a place in the computer science degree in that college, I thought I'd go for my second choice, which was telecommunication engineering, specifically because of digital signal processing as a concept and how interesting I found it. And then eventually, once I graduated from there, I realized that how much ever I do love digital signal processing and do enjoy working with it, I found that I was still far more suited to the computer science lifestyle or, you know, to put it more bluntly, I was pretty bad at telecommunication. I, I moved back into the computer science lifestyle by getting a job at ThoughtWorks. And it's interesting because eventually I ended up in data engineering, which I would say is the field in computer science that has any semblance to digital signal processing. So I guess I lucked out in that way, but yeah, that's my, that's how I ended up in IT. Yeah, good. Interesting. You mentioned lifestyle. The computer science lifestyle. So, Do you see any changes in the computer science lifestyle or the typical day in the life of someone who is into IT between say Bangalore and Berlin? Um, that's interesting. Uh, I would say yes, mainly because I think Berlin as a software hub is like at a very nascent stages. So there are a lot of software companies now, but the startup boom in berlin has just begun let's say about 4 to 5 years ago or maybe 6 years ago so because of that early stage being a software engineer in berlin is still quite a interesting thing to tell people if you know what i mean like in for example i grew up in bangalore where if you say you're a software engineer there's you know nobody blinks but, but yeah in berlin if you you know introduce yourself as a software engineer there are still people still have questions to ask you You know, it's not been spoken about to death. Apart from that, I'd say the lifestyle itself is similar. I mean, work culture and stuff has obvious differences in terms of just general culture, but the specific, your own life, I would say doesn't change much. Uh, What about the support that you get from your peers or from the organization? Here, in a more uh, mature environment, you can probably reach out to either somebody in the company or outside the company, as you mentioned, probably if you walk on the street, you'd probably bump into another software engineer, uh, two, <laughs> getting that support uh, when you're with a small enterprise and in a probably a city where the software is just picking up. Interesting. I suppose where, the way that works in a city like Berlin, where since they don't have a lot of software engineers, they kind of import a lot of them, like myself. and large number of people from various other countries in the world you know like Israel and Pakistan and Russia and America so I feel like a large number of the older software engineers for example within my own company have that experience if not the company itself so the city itself may be new to software engineering and therefore the support may be lacking in that sense but Uh, The software companies that are now coming up in Berlin are being spearheaded by people who've come externally and who do have that sort of experience in that lifestyle. So the support comes from that source, the people who have seen it before in other places, if not in Berlin itself. In terms of uh, overall awareness of the environment or the activist mindset, uh, if I can take the liberty of labeling you as a millennial, how does that influence The way you look at software or your generation looks at software compared to, let's say, what your father or say our generation did? I suppose when in my father's generation, software was considered to be very kind of sacred. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but software was a very specialty, you know, thing that people needed and it was built for very specific purposes. And in in certain terms, the software was this the product itself, you know, even if the software is, of course, helping to serve other services, the software had a certain sense of importance that led it to be the focus of, you know, the whole environment, even if the system was supposed to be working for something else. That has actually translated into the future, into a lot of bad habits that are now trying to be broken over the last 10 years. And this is something we talk about a lot at companies like Omeo, uh, where we discuss that People tend to, based on old habits, try to put so much focus on the software that the vision for the product itself gets lost. Companies get built from the tech side, and built from the software itself, as opposed to, you know, built from something like the customer or built from, you know, the vision that you have or, you know, the future that you see. When you start focusing in the wrong direction, that is I believe caused by a lot of old habits that are now changing slowly. So when you say the character of the product or looking at what it needs to do, uh, do you normally design for the current generation or current active generation? Or do you also consider people like us who were there earlier, but then now probably used to some of the old styles of working? Do you mean when we design the product itself? Yes. Yeah, uh, that we certainly do. So I... Let me give you an example of uh, another company in Berlin, where the is basically they have, they sell vouchers, like, you know, for supermarkets and loyalty programs for supermarkets and stuff. That's their entire business. And they're one of the biggest shareholding companies, funded companies in Germany right now. And that company, for example, has to put a lot of focus on a lot of different kinds of people using the product. The same is true for us, of course, because we we hope that, you know, every sort of person can book with us because we are a a travel company. But a company like that company, for example, has to make sure that focus is very directed because a large percentage of their users are people, you know, older or, you know, who are not so used to technology. And it's, it's such a specific offline system that has been translated into an online system. And when that happens is generally when you need to focus on making sure that the people who are comfortable using these offline systems that have been using it for years are not turned off by the necessity or the, you know, the push towards moving to online. But of course, all this comes from a maximizing market share perspective and not from a any kind of humanitarian perspective, what I mentioned, but obviously we want to make it as easy for people to use as possible. So uh, is there a change in thinking that is needed for somebody who's working on, let's say, the user interfaces, like you mentioned, catering to different segments and a data engineer? That's a very good question, because even in the field of data engineering, I work very closely with and, you know, as a data analyst as well. So a lot of our downstream, you know, our product managers and our product analysts want to know the kind of people that are using our system, you know, how the usage is right? How, you know, our tracking, our sales numbers, all that, how it splits up by demographic, by various dimensions. And a lot of this, the reason that they want to know a lot of this is to make sure that their product is usable by the largest number of people possible. And uh, in the past, data engineering was a lot about just, you know, I'm just going to move data from here to there. But I think as we move towards the future of data engineering, a large part of what people are trying to do is make sure that even at every point in the pipeline, even the people, you know, just delivering the data, have are cognizant of what the data is, where it's coming from, who, what it means for them. Because then we'll be able to deliver, you know, what they need in an easier way. And how what that translates to is that these factors of our users, how they're using our systems, what they're using it for, are more important than ever. For even for a data engineer like me, because we should be able to focus on what sort of tracking we can do. Because, for example, the product manager who wants to know what data he, he can see is not aware of the potential of what can be tracked or what you know what we can know about the people using our system. And as a data engineer, I should be able to tell them these are the things we can track and these are the things that are valuable to you. And for that, we need to be able to know what is valuable to them, which means you know knowing how our users use the system, what they use it for, who uses it, and things like that. So, how does this whole approach or uh, this area uh, work under the post GDPR scenario? Uh, Yeah, GDPR is probably one of the biggest projects that all the European software companies have undertaken in the last, I'd say, year and a half. And it's still ongoing, right? I think what people are trying to do is make sure that they're doing their best to enable the you know, the policies of GDPR to be applied, right? To be GDPR compliant means to have two systems, one for every user to be able to say, hey, I want, to, I want you to tell me what data you have that's mine, and I want you to give that all to me so I can see what you know about Right. And the other aspect is saying, hey, I want you to take whatever data you have about me and forget it, right? Which is what they're calling the right to be forgotten, which has now been even strengthened with the GDPR compliance. And this is something that historically has been a lot, big problem for data engineering because before these policies came into play, everyone had an, you know, an attitude of what data can we capture? Let's capture every bit of data possible, whether or not we need it. And then in the future, maybe we can figure out how to use it. But now the attitude has slowly started to shift. Or, for example, the EU government wants the attitude to shift towards you take what you need and then you keep what you need. You shouldn't keep data that you have no valuable reason to keep. And even that reason could be something as innocuous as, you know, hey, I want to know more about the user. But even if that is your reason, you should be able to delete it. Right. Mm. So that's Mm. the big attitude shift that's happening. The attitude shift is when you're collecting data, you need to kind of think about how you're going to use it, what you're going to use it for, do I need it, as opposed to in the past where it was just like, I'm just going to, you know. Pull everything possible, just slam it all in the locker. Never look at it again. Which, in some ways, can be seen as a you know violation of privacy or you know things like that. So, does data engineering confine itself only to quantitative data? And the second is, is it only about structured data? So, on the second one, yes, I would say it is structured data. But uh, that kind of depends on how you define structured data. We have you know a lot of aspects of where we get our data from. You know our own systems being the primary one and you know external systems like marketing agencies and things like that but i would say yes data generating primarily consists of structured data but you know the structures themselves are changing now what what a structure means is changing now quantitative data yeah so but that's uh, a difficult line to draw i mean even quantitative data becomes qualitative once you aggregate it i would say that no one beyond the data engineer itself is ever looking at each row of data. And I'd say not even the data engineer looks at it generally. You know, The idea is to be able to look at the data as a whole and aggregate in a certain way that gives some meaning to the data because just looking at data row by row doesn't give you any kind of idea. So I would say that quantitative, yes, but not at a, you know, at a raw level. Like Just pure numbers don't really tell you anything usually. Uh, this is uh, more of a curiosity question or something that I've wondered uh, about. When you have a lot of data, you say that we analyze the data. Then do you also look at missing data or gaps in the data to infer something? Yes. Okay. So, yeah, it depends on how you define a gap. So, generally, the, I mean, the, the trigger for uh, this thought, one of the Sherlock Holmes stories, uh-huh. you know, the, I think The Hound of Baskerville, yeah. where um, you know the fact that there was no dog barking, yeah at that time, and led uh, Holmes to believe that uh, you know, the person who was there was a known person, yeah okay. saying that if you just go look at uh, yeah was there a dog barking, it' would have been no, you may not even have asked that question right? so looking for data that is not there or evidence that is not there, yeah, probably of the dog is an item. Yeah. yeah that's a very that's a very interesting analogy to use because a large part of the data systems that we build now. Are like real-time systems that warn you if something goes wrong, right? And that can the things that go wrong can go wrong in a lot of places, right? It can either go wrong, you know, at the very top of the funnel, which is oh, the website is down, right? You need to know when that happens. Of course, there are system monitors and things like that that tell you, but in very specific cases, like you know, the country of Moldova, the website wasn't accessible for four minutes. These are things that you need to know. But which may not necessarily come up in a general systems check. That's yeah. one example. But and these are systems. A, these are things that will come up in a you know in, a, in an anomaly detection system for data. And another thing is you know further down the funnel, you want to know when something is broken in the data processing pipeline itself. Again, we have checks for things that are missing, things that are what we call anomalies generally. And then further afield, you also want to know when oh a marketing campaign has not worked or a marketing campaign has not been properly deployed because let's say there's a repeated marketing campaign that you you know send every time and you know that when you turn on that marketing campaign the number of searches you get goes up by you know three percent and one day you turn on the marketing campaign but you think you turn on the marketing campaign and you don't get that three percent bump you first suspect okay maybe i didn't turn it on that but all this can only be done when you know we see that change and a large part of the work that we do now is building such systems that can detect anomalies at such a granular level right to be able to say not just at a you know wide scale saying oh instead of 600,000 people logging in today we only had you know 400 000. or that won't always be the case when there are specific things wrong but anomaly detection is something that needs to be more cut by dimensions and you need to know specifically what happened and the ability for machines to be able to tell that for instance, humans looking at it is something that's really helpful in that case. So that you know, triggers a question on another favorite topic of mine, which is uh, this whole artificial intelligence on machine learning or mm-hmm. everything happening through data. Where do you think that is headed to become as ubiquitous as uh, our cell phones or wherever I want, I know that I will have either a recommendation or a nudge or probably the other extreme of being manipulated. Well, uh, so being in the industry, I can tell you that machine learning and artificial intelligence is used, but I'd say that in terms of its potential, it's still super early in the things it can do. Because a large part of the machine learning systems that are being built right now are to do with how the you know the models are built and how the which kind of models are used and all that is currently decided ad hoc depending on the situation there's no generalized model that people use for any kind of system which makes it a very uh, not only a lucrative job for a data sentence who can do it correctly but also a very lucrative goal in terms of choosing the right you know systems to develop in that so even for a simple use case like deciding what products on your website to show first? Which should, if you think about it, be the most simple machine learning system ever. But that's have, that's taken a long time for a long time and a lot of real life money to be able to develop such a system. And because that doesn't work, that generalized model that was built for that doesn't work for anything else. Everything has to be tweaked specifically. That means that it's still quite elusive in terms of being able to become worldwide and you know see itself in every single package but i feel like over the next 10 to 15 years we'll see a sharp we will suddenly see a sharp increase but we're not there yet i think there's some there needs to be another breakthrough before it suddenly becomes ubiquitous in our lives so does it also mean that uh, for every data science problem i guess it may apply to others as well that you don't carry any memory of how you solved the previous problem and then start afresh? I'd say if I were to find a good analogy, it would be like solving a mathematical equation. You know the techniques to solve the equation and you know how you would solve it. The computer knows how to solve it, but it still needs to solve the equation. So even if you were implementing a new system and that is accepted that you know if it's let's say the the same example that i gave before the product ranking system right let's say there's an accepted heuristic for product ranking now there's one model that can be trained and even those models that can be trained need to be specifically tuned for your use case and your you know data set and your users and your system and things like that and that's where i think there's that small gap that still needs to be just reversed and once we traverse that gap we'll Beyond the way to, you know, making it much more ubiquitous. On a similar track, I don't know how much it directly applies, but then when you spoke about your career, starting with telecoms and software, then into data, as well as moving cultures. In all these, if you were to call them as inflection points, what did you have to unlearn? How do you adjust and quickly learn what is required in the new environment? I'd say that uh, a big change point for me was when I transitioned from uh, Thoughtworks here in Bangalore to Omeo in Berlin. And for, that was for a few reasons. One, I was moving out of the city that I grew up in my whole life. Two, I was moving from a services-based company, which why uh, is widely regarded as a very famously agile company, and you know, the agile manifestos had been written by people from ThoughtWorks, you know, a large kind of that kind of environment, to a, you know, a fresh startup, which is a product company, you know, much, much smaller. The scales is so different you work with people from all across the company and things like that you don't have any clients your clients are you know their customers so that was a huge kind of change in perspective for me especially since the only perspective i had had at that point was dot right because i moved from university state into that company and i'd only worked with that and when i switched here i think i learned a lot like From moving, you know, being able to prioritize things, you know, being able to do things in a way that, you know, make our own decisions. Like, for example, in ThoughtWorks, we have a client and the client has a set of requirements. So, of course, we would help them, you know, better understand their own requirements, you know, refine them, give them more perspective and things like that. But here, we have to kind of figure out what the requirements are for ourselves, right? Being at the BI team. I'd say a large part of our requirements comes from the rest of the company, depending on either a product product team saying, hey, we're building this new feature. We need to get data about this feature into the data warehouse or from the analysts in the company saying, hey, we want to know more about this aspect of our product and that comes from there. But as we evolve the product, we want to make sure that the system that we build can keep up and scale for the future. So large part of the requirements that we have for our team actually came within the team itself, which is not something that I was used to, you know, building our own requirements, finding out exactly what's needed, talking to people, just, you know, going around the company, making yourself known, finding out what other people are doing, and, you know, building our systems to be in line with the rest of the company and the company's vision. The grounding that you had in Agile approaches how much of it is relevant or are you able to use in the data engineering problems? I think uh, the grounding that I got in Agile actually is quite helpful. Agile practices are being d- adapted all over the world. And I find that right now, the difficult part that people and companies are finding is picking and choosing the aspects of Agile that actually provide value to the team that you're in. Like in the BI or data engineering world, My team, as the business intelligence team, will not have, you know, specifically a large set of long-term, apart from the long-term plans that we have, we will also have a lot of very short-term goals. Like, hey, quickly we need to find out, you know, some specific data or, you know, hey, this thing is missing. And a lot of of, concepts of agile need to be translated a lot to be able to fit in this new environment. And I think that's a big challenge a lot of people are facing where they kind of associate certain things with agile and have difficulty adapting those to different environments and will try to apply the same template everywhere, which doesn't necessarily work all the time. Uh, Again, one of my favorite questions, which I like to ask all the guests at the end is uh, based on your experience, what suggestions or guidance would you have for others considering entering IT? But I would Mm -hmm. probably add... uh, a little more to that uh, if somebody were looking at uh, europe as a geography to move to now how does one prepare for that or do you have any suggestions as what one should do should not do or not be disappointed about yeah so moving to europe when uh, moving to europe i think is a very interesting case because when within the it industry moving from company to company i feel like globally there's not a lot of difference in terms of Specifically the way you work, you do tend to run into a lot of different cultures, which I think is extremely good, and you do run into a lot of different perspectives, which are hard to get in a kind of fairly homogeneous way of thinking in certain companies that can develop. Having that different way of thinking from different people across the world generally builds a healthier environment, or the people in the company are mature enough to be able to pick and choose the good aspects from all the different perspectives. Apart from that, I am of the opinion and I have been of the opinion for a long time that life in a big city in various, you know, anywhere in the world, your daily life will generally be the same. Of course, there will be cultural aspects that are different. You'll be playing different sports, meeting different people, and that's always amazing. But your work life, I find generally, it's quite similar and you're always able to adjust and yeah, and I always recommend it to people who enjoy traveling, who enjoy seeing new things. So I'm sure there are a lot of people who will want to come to Europe now. Thanks a lot, janta for uh, taking the time and sharing your perspectives on your short visit here. And uh, we hope to hear more from you as you gain you know, more yes, uh, I mean, interesting stories. For sure. Yeah, I'd love like to be back on the podcast at some point, I suppose.